Hi everyone, it's Caleb, and I'm so excited that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. And today I'm honored to be joined by Todd Bolsinger, who has recently released a brand new book called Tempered Resilience, How Leaders Are Formed in the Crucible of Change. And I'm so excited to bring this conversation to you um, because in the past year, we've all experienced so much change uh, corporately uh, across uh, our country here, in, well, not even just in the United States, literally across the world. And then you just throw in just the personal change that comes with it as well. And so, so excited to have this conversation, provide this conversation to you uh, today with Todd. Um, but before that, I do want to say a couple of quick things. want to give a quick shout out to Garrett Oler, who edits the podcast, and Sam Massey, who has created the audio for this podcast. Both of them help make this podcast more awesome than it would be uh, without them. And so super grateful for the both of them. If this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast today, I want to tell you a little bit about the podcast. Really what we hope to do here is to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. Because if you're like me and you consider yourself to be a lifelong learner, you know, there are certain subjects that uh, maybe you've learned about or you've come across that you've just realized, I can't talk with this person about this because they're, they get, maybe they get really defensive about it. And you just feel like, well, I'm not going to make that mistake again. Or maybe, maybe anytime that you bring that up, then someone maybe shames you or judges you for bringing up that conversation. And you just simply want, want to learn and grow. And here on the Learner's Corner, we want to create a safe place to where you can learn about those things because we truly believe that we can learn from anyone, everyone, anything, and everything. And that's personally why I do the podcast as well, is to create those types of conversations, to create those types of places. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about Todd before we jump into our conversation. Todd is a speaker, executive coach, former pastor, and author who serves as an associate professor of leadership formation and senior fellow for the Dupree Center for Leadership at Fuller Seminary. He is the author of Canoeing the Mountains, which was named Outreach Magazine Resource of the Year in Pastoral Leadership, as well as the Christianity Today Award of Merit Recipient. It takes a church to raise a Christian. And for 17 years, he was the senior pastor at San Clemente Presbyterian Church in San Clemente, California. He's a freaking speaker and consultant and serves as an executive coach in transformational leadership. And so without any wait, here is my conversation with Todd Bolsinger. Well, Todd, I'm so excited to have you on uh, the Learner's Corner podcast today to talk about uh, your brand new book, Tempered Resilience. Yes, thank you. Nice to have. Th- thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and and before uh, we get into um, the book, which it, which deals a lot with uh, you know adaptive leadership, mm-hmm. I, I would just love to ask your thought, just because of uh, I know your experience and everything. Of what what are maybe some of the the challenges that you're seeing right now that are just pervasive in leadership? Um, outside adaptive leadership right now? 
Well, the biggest challenges of leadership are the are the moment we're in. We're in a completely <laughs> unprecedented moment, right? Somebody said we're in a 1918, 1929, and 1968 all at the same time, right? So we have a health crisis. We have an economic crisis. We have a um, crisis about social injustice that's coming to the fore again. And every leader is having to navigate um, multiple crises. And now you can add on top of it, we've got a deep political division in our culture. Um, nobody's ever had to navigate this kind, this complexity of this kind of crisis at this at, at such a rate as we are at this moment. So that's the giant challenge of the day for everybody. <laughs> yeah. What, I mean, it really does feel like as soon as, uh, and I, I don't, uh, maybe we don't have a handle on it, but we're starting to get accustomed to it. It seems like something else uh, yeah. starts to happen. And whether it be uh, through your own personal leadership or even just uh, through through your research or even stuff, other people, um, what are maybe some of the things that you're seeing uh, of how to handle multiple crises in different areas at one time? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the biggest parts about that is um, I think there's two things. Number one is leaders have got to pay closer and closer attention to how they show up in a crisis. In other words, uh, this isn't about your technique. It's more about you. You're Somebody said you're your only tool, right? So yeah. when you show up to lead an organization, a company, a group, a congregation, um, how you show up to that crisis is going to make the biggest impact. If you're highly anxious or highly angry or highly fearful, it's going to be contagious. If you can show up calm and focused on your mission and encourage other people to do their work about growing into the people they need to be so that you can face the challenges in front of you, then that will make the biggest difference. Mm -hmm. What are, what are some practices that help us become more aware of uh, what we what we may be feeling or what we may be going through because sometimes you know if if you're wrapped up in in all of that emotion sometimes it could be very hard to think I'm being emotional right now I need to take a step back yeah yeah so so the book I wrote is on resilience and the reason why it's a book on resilience is because when people are leading in what I call uncharted territory where your expertise is irrelevant. Your experience and your maturity and your character could be really relevant, but your expertise, you, you don't, don't have a game plan because you've never been here before. Then the most important thing that you've got to start with is the acknowledgement about, about becoming more and more aware of yourself. So here's an interesting part. Resilience, which is about strength and flexibility, is a byproduct that is a formation product that starts in your own acknowledgement of your vulnerability. And for most of us, especially younger leaders, our great temptation is to fake it till we make it. And unfortunately, if you try to fake it till you'll make it, you'll actually never make it because um, what you need is to actually be a genuinely mature learner who can go through and, set and work with people as they go through times of loss, as they experiment and innovate their way to new, uh, uh, new strategies, new approaches. Mm-hmm. What do you think is it that makes us? Uh, fearful to show that vulnerability, especially whenever it pertains to leadership. Yeah, yeah. Well, vulnerability sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Brene, Brene Brown actually talks about uh, talks yeah. about it using language like "embrace the suck," yeah. right? Um, that um, Brene Brown makes this great statement where she says that when we see vulnerability in other people, we think of it as raw courage, but when we see it in ourselves, we think of it as nothing but weakness we want to get rid of. And so, this is one of the first places that, that I mean, here's the great irony: resilience, strength 
flexibility, tempered resilience, like a tempered tool, that all begins with the acknowledgement that you need to allow yourself to feel your own vulnerability so you can be shaped into the leader you need to be. Mm-hmm. What, what does allowing uh, vulnerability, what does it look like to allow vulnerabilities in other people as well? What does it look like to say that again? Uh, yeah, I don't know if I said that how I meant to, but what does it look like to create a safe place as a leader to embrace that vulnerability in other people? Yeah, that's really a helpful question, Caleb. I appreciate that. So the way I put it this way is um, leaders go first and bring other people with them. So the only way you can create a safe environment that's okay for vulnerability is if you're willing to go first and be vulnerable. And that's hard. That's hard. So, I mean, so here's one of the examples. Adaptive leadership starts the minute you find yourself in a place where someone looks at you and says, so what are we going to do? You're the leader. And your answer is, I don't know. And that's a hard moment, right? Because we tend to think that leaders are experts. Leaders should have the answer. The, The way the world is changing, the complexity of the world we're in, leaders are not the people who show up with experts as experts. You're an expert in the past. Eric Hoffer said, you know, uh, learners inherit the earth and the learned find themselves beautifully equipped for a world that no longer exists. What's hard though, is when we are anxious and we're followers, we want experts. We want the person who shakes a finger and says, I can solve this problem for you. And I can tell you that in a day like today, if anybody shows up in front of you and says, I alone can solve it, they're lying. They're completely, because there isn't, that isn't the reality of leadership today. Leaders are the people who show up, gather us together, lead us through our own growth and learning Mm -hmm. so that we can find the way forward in in a, uh, so we can find the path forward. Yeah. I, uh, I want to go back to something that you said earlier, and you've actually said it a couple of times. You mentioned uh, that you can be the leader and not be the expert. And yet whenever you're, whenever you're facing, you know, new situations, you're trying to gain as much, as much knowledge or as much expertise in whatever area that you're facing. And so what does it look like to gain expertise and especially gain it like as quickly as possible? Cause you're trying to solve all of this stuff. Yeah, well, so it's 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 we're we're saying the same thing in a good other way. Think about it this way: the minute before you become a leader, you probably were an expert, hmm. right? The minute before you got promoted to being the leadership leader of the team, the sales manager, the pastor of the church, the executive director of the organization, the head of a group in a company, you probably were an expert solo contributor. So, you know, if you have the biggest CV with the most amount of publications, you become the dean of the faculty. You be, if you are the person who is the best preacher, you become the pastor of a church. If you're the person who's got the best sales record, they make you the sales manager. The problem, however, is as soon as you become a leader, you're now no longer the expert. You're the beginner. And so what you have to do at that moment is switch your emphasis from my individual contribution to our team becoming a better team. And that means you have got to lead the learning. And that starts with your being able to say, we got something we need to learn. So Talk gather up, let's yeah. have this conversation. Let's learn together. Let's learn quickly, you know, um, and let's, let's pro, uh, the, uh, the, in the Silicon Valley language, let's prototype our way to the future. Yeah. Uh, I absolutely love that. Leading, leading the learning. Can you just say more about that of what, uh, like if someone's like, hey, I, I want to start that, what what would you say? Hey, this I would start here and do this and so on and so forth. Well, so this is an interesting thing. We often think that leaders are people who show up with a vision and a plan. 
And actually what you need is leaders who show up, who are deeply attuned to the pain of the world. The best leaders are solving a problem. So if you show up and you're really aware, this is painful, gather some people together and say, let's make this better. So if you're a mom in a neighborhood and you're like, look, my kids like playing in the street, in the neighborhood, in the cul-de-sac, but we don't have a a stop sign. Somebody's going to get hurt. When you gather a group of people together and say, we need to get the the city to put a stop sign here, that, that convening is leading. Now, you may never have done that before. You've never, you've never started a petition. You've never put in a stop sign. You've never dealt with City Hall. You have no idea how the business building codes work, all that stuff. But as soon as you convene people together and say, there's a problem, so let's together work on that problem, you're leading. So to lead the learning is to acknowledge the pain and is to acknowledge then what we need to learn so that we can address that and make it better. Yeah. Uh, talk. Talk to me more about discovering discovering the pain of the people that you're leading and mm-hmm. um, and just how to do that. Yeah, so so uh, so I work um, uh, at a seminary. We we train people for pastoral ministry yeah. and Christian leadership in in nonprofit organizations. And about three years ago, I was asked to take over a brand new division in the school. I became a senior VP and the chief of our leadership formation division. Our goal was to not just have people come to our campus to get our graduate degrees, which is what we do, but also to make our research and our resources available to leaders out in the front lines, whether they need our degrees or not. So we started talking about that with somebody and somebody who works in Silicon Valley said to me, you know, what you're talking about is doing a startup in the middle of your uh, institution. So, you know, educational institutions, let alone religious educational institutions are not known for being very innovative. What would would it be like if you were to meet with a bunch of startup people? Great. Flew to Silicon Valley, San Jose, California, went into Palo Alto, into one of those famous um, offices in one of those famous streets and sat with a group of people and they said, okay, tell us what you want to do. And I said, we want the school to serve people on the front lines, whether they need our degrees or not. He goes, great, give us a pitch. Like we were funding you. We're not going to fund you, but pretend it's a pitch. Great. I gave them the pitch. When it was over, they all laughed and they went, you've been doing that around the school a lot, haven't you? I said, yeah, I've actually been trying to get staff and get buy-in from the administration. I said, great, because what you just did is you just told us why your idea would be good for the school. Todd, nobody cares what's good for your school. Nobody in the world cares what's good for your organization. Nobody cares what's good for your company. All they care about is that your school, your organization, and your company cares about them. So go back out and talk to people and find out what their pain is and ask them how you could serve that. And then come back and talk to us some more. So I did six months. I just did a bunch of focus groups, talked to a bunch of people, said, tell me where you're experiencing pain that something like a graduate school that trains people for Christian ministry could help solve. And that's what we started working on it. So a ton of what it is, is actually listening to people, hearing what they need. I ask people a lot, what's great about your community? What would make it better? Uh, one one person put it this way: What's great? What sucks? What would make it suck less? <laughs> right? <laughs> and then figure out how to work on that. And that's and more and more and more. That's where leadership needs to be: seeing that pain and gr- get, bringing people together to make it better. Mm. What are what are some things that you've learned that help you get better at at listening? 
Well, one of the most important things, I mean, even in the book, Tempered Resilience, what I talk a lot about is I talk about listening as a kind of spiritual practice, like mm -hmm. learning to listen deeply until a person feels felt. That's the idea, feeling felt. Um, so even um, at Google, they did an entire study, as only Google would do, with a bunch of engineers on what makes a perfect, what makes a really high-performing team. And after doing all the analysis of all the variables with all the data they could muster, they came up with this answer. The high-performing teams are teams of psychological safety, a place where a person can learn and fail, can take risks, suggest ideas. So a bunch of what listening is about is learning not to wait for the opportunity to talk so that I can impress someone, but actually listening deeply to what the person is saying so that when they are finished, they say not, this is, this is the one of the little markers. When you finish listening to someone and you repeat back to them what they say, they should say, that's right. Instead of, hey, you're right. We always want people to say, oh, you're right. No, no, no. What you want is for people to say, actually, you understand me. That's right. That's what I want. Yeah. Is uh, you talked about how listening creates that psychological safety. Is, is there anything else that you've learned that helps lead to greater psychological safety for your team? Well, one of them is, um, is creating this, the expectation that we are going to learn through failure. Mm-hmm. I always say the goal of an experiment is not to figure out what works. It's to figure out what we learned. Mm. So creating an, creating an idea where you have a hypothesis, it's a scientific method, right? You have a hypothesis, you test it, you come back to it. Instead of being embarrassed or embarrassing each other because something didn't work, instead rejoice that you have it. Like the, the only failure is the failure to learn from your mistakes. Mm. Do you have like... Do you have like a process or something that maybe you run through personally or with your team after like a failure, not even just a failure, but after you've completed something that helps you like internalize that learning more? Yeah. Yeah. It's actually pretty simple. Yeah. What you choose, you get into the habit of always doing an after action report. You're of always talking it through what worked, what doesn't work. What else do we want to say? Like, mm -hmm. really? Like, it's just as simple as that. Like, what's working, what didn't work. What else did we learn? What did we want to say? Because what's interesting, what's interesting when you say, okay, so what worked? Everybody loves that. What didn't work? Oh, we got lots of ideas. Well, what else do you want to say? Then we start finding other things mm -hmm. like this idea would have worked if we weren't in a pandemic. <laughs> like, okay, let's make a note to come back and try this one <laughs> next year, right? Yeah. Or this might would have this would have worked better if we'd have had better technology. Okay, let's check and see if that's true, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, what worked? What didn't work? What else do you want to say? is really important and gathering and try to think about like in adaptive leadership, you're always telling people start with as many observations as you possibly can mm. try not to move. It's observation to interpretation, to intervention. Most of us just want to skip to the intervention. We just want to do stuff. Start with observations, observe as much as you possibly can get as many interpretations as you possibly can. Then try some experiments based upon those interpretations and test them. And that creates the learning loop. Has, has there been anything that's helped you become more observant? 
Um, yeah, being wrong a lot. <laughs> like, like, I mean, you have, a, you have a decision to make, especially as, as you become one of the hardest parts. Again, this goes back to the idea of vulnerability. I mean, so here's, so, so my book is about resilience because mm-hmm. the, the biggest struggle most leaders have isn't how do I lead in the midst of a changing world? The biggest struggle most leaders have is how do I lead my people when they are resisting changing so that mm-hmm. we can make a difference in a world? I mean, what all of us want is we want the status quo. We want things to be comfortable and familiar. And I just always think the root word of family and familiar are the same word. So when you feel like you're in unfamiliar territory, you feel like you're an orphan. You feel like you're homeless. You're rootless. So we will go back to what is familiar, even if it doesn't work. And that's one of the most dangerous things. So if you've had enough things that don't work and you are tired and you want things to be better because you want things to be better for other people and you want things to be better in your community, better in your organization, then you have to be recognizing that the only way forward is acknowledging what is broken and not working and then trying some new things. And you've got to become a person who is more committed to learning and doing good than being an expert and looking good. Man, uh, that's so good. Uh, why do you think the draw is towards looking like an expert instead of that that learning path, that learning journey that you talked about? Because we all want to look good, right? Because we do. <laughs> we, I mean, I mean, I hate. I mean, hate. It's not too strong a word. Hate feeling wrong. Mm-hmm. So what you've got to do is actually lean into the opportunity to say, when I'm wrong, what I'm ac- actually doing is learning. So there's a, there's a great TED talk about how does it feel to be wrong? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, we ask the question, how does it feel to be wrong? And everybody goes, oh, it's terrible. It's shameful. No, you just answered the wrong question. That's how it feels when you figured out you were wrong. Mostly when you're wrong, until you know you're wrong, you think you're right. Mm. So one of the hardest things to help leaders get is the moment you figure out this isn't working, what you're actually doing is you're now got information that makes you better. Mm -hmm. So now figure out what you can do next. Yeah. Talk to me about how you reached, uh, you know, the title of your book, Tempered Resilience. Yeah. So I went, um, I wrote another book called Canoeing the Mountains, which is called Leadership in Uncharted Territory, which is really the introduction to the whole idea of adaptive change using the story of Lewis and Clark, how they discovered that the water route they were looking for, that everybody was looking for for 300 years wasn't there because the Rocky Mountains were in the way. And so when they finally uh, found that they discovered the Rocky Mountains, you know, they were just the first white people to discover the Rocky Mountains. But when they discovered the Rocky Mountains, they realized they couldn't keep paddling their way into the future. They had to change everything. They had to drop the canoes and go forward. So I use that to talk about adaptive leadership. Adaptive leadership is literally where you have to lead without being an expert and you have to learn and you have to face loss, dropping a canoe, letting go of your past successes, learning as you go. And what would happen is I'd go around the country and I'd talk about that. And then the group that would have whoever invite me to come speak about it would usually get me together afterwards for like a meal and then say, hey, that was really helpful, but I just don't know if we have anybody who can actually do that. And I was like, well, I'm, okay, I need to do a better job of explaining. They said, no, 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 that's not it. You don't get it. One person said to me, I think I can learn to lead change. I just don't think if I can survive it. Mm-hmm. Like it's really hard. And what makes it hard is 
if you told your people, hey, I'm going to lead you on a river trip, and now you tell them, hey, we need to drop the canoes and we need to walk over the mountains, that's not what they signed up for. And almost every leader in a changing world has to look people in the eye and say, I know this isn't what you signed up for, but if we're going to fulfill our mission, we've got to keep going. And that when people get mad at you and angry and disappointed, that's when you need resilience. You mentioned uh, just the role that loss plays in that because you have to leave everything behind. And uh, I know just from my own experience, like leading a team through or leading a group of people through that could just be challenging. What have, what have you learned about leading people through just loss? Well, the hardest thing is that basically people don't resist change. They resist loss. Mm-hmm. So loss is the issue. It's resistance is the issue. Um, in, um, I, I often talk about the fact that um, Ed Friedman, who wrote about this, is a, it was a Jewish rabbi who wrote about this. He said, you know, um, every leader needs to expect sabotage. You haven't succeeded until you've survived the sabotage. So actually, you need to actually make change. Then there'll be a reaction. People, will, people who said they were all in favor of it will then get angry and mad at it. They'll want to go back to the way it was. Mm. And you then have to persevere through that. And what is important to recognize is that people aren't resisting the change. They're resisting the loss. So you have to take them through the loss and keep them going. Mm. How do you do that? Listening, empathy, attunement, um, giving people a reason to endure the loss, a sense of vision and purpose that's bigger than that, Mm -hmm. Um, helping them recognize that in the loss, there's actually an opportunity to discover something else. I mean, uh, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark were trying to discover a water route. They thought they were going to make them famous explorers. What they discovered was a whole new world. Mm. And what they discovered was a number of indigenous tribes, Native American people who were amazing to them and treated them greatly. And we wish that others would have learned their lessons from them because the people who came after them were terrible. Yeah. They learned that they were, they learned how to be humble. They learned what it was like to be a community. They learned to think about the world in a totally different way. And they learned to communicate um, the possibilities of an entire geography that nobody else had seen. They didn't find a water route. They found something way bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to ask a question and I know that it's not like, I'm not looking for a definitive answer on this because I know that there isn't, it's different from everybody, but uh, I know that sometimes it could be challenging to figure out with dealing with the loss of, Hey, this person needs more time. And this person just isn't going to move beyond whatever it is. How, any advice on how to distinguish between the two? Well, you know, so what? Um, some of the best advice that I was given came from a group called the Lombard Mennonite Peace Center, where they're all, always working to bring people together to uh, bring peace and reconciliation instead of war and conflict. And what they'll often say is, whenever you find people are getting the most anxious, the most upset, the most divisive, the most sabotaging, you need to stay calm, you need to stay connected, and you need to stay the course. Mm-hmm. So part of what you need as a leader is you need to be able to calmly acknowledge they're mad and they're angry and they're probably mad and angry at you, but don't, don't react to that. Focus on your reason for being here, which is to accomplish your mission, to do your objective, 
stay closer to those people who are struggling and then be clear that you're going to keep going. Stay the course. And eventually people have to choose whether they're going to go with you or not. Mm-hmm. But you can't wait for everybody else to finally want to get on board. Yeah. Just as I uh, was preparing for our conversation, I, I came across this quote in your book. And, it, and you say, the default behavior of most organizational leaders is to solve the problems for our organizations rather than change our organizations from meeting the needs of the world. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? And then there's a couple other things I would love to ask you about. Yeah, yeah, that's bas- that's basically the quote that came from the meeting with those guys in Silicon yeah. Valley. They said, look, you you want to try to make it better for your school. And let's face it, right now in the middle of a pandemic and the middle of a changing world, education is in a crisis. You're just trying to figure out what's good for your school. They don't care about your school. Don't mm-hmm. Don't try to change your school to make things better for your school. Make your school more attuned to the needs of people in the world and your school will have value. Mm-hmm. And so one of the parts that leaders have to keep doing is asking the question, does this have value to anybody? Does this make a difference? Does this make the world a better place? Does this make it better for other people? And if it does, then they'll prove it. And then you keep going on that. Uh, Don't try to change the organization to make it better for the organization. Change the organization to make a difference in the world and your organization will still be relevant. Mm. Are are there any, and I I know that you kind of gave, uh, some some questions to figure it out, but I would just love to see if you have any other thoughts on like are there there's some warning signs that you can be aware of of like hey we are we are falling victim to this mentality because we're doing you know x y and z or stuff like that. Then the mentality of thinking about ourselves, uh, thinking about ourselves and not being willing to change our organization to meet the needs of the world. Yeah. Are there any warning signs that are like hey we're not like we're not doing that. Yeah, well, usually, I mean, just the thing you should assume is we're not going to do that. <laughs> you should assume <laughs> that we are going to want to, we, the, um, Ed Friedman talks about the persistence of form. We want the status quo. We want, like, just, just remember when, um, you know, the famous biblical story about the, about the Hebrews being saved from Egypt, they get out of slavery. They have a great miracle you know, God parts the Red Sea. They end up on the other side of the Red Sea. They are ready to go to the promised land. And they literally think, hmm, let's go back. Mm. Boy, they killed our children, but we had a good lunch. We had leeks and onions every day. Mm. It's normal for people to, to be fearful about change. Change is hard. Change is really hard. And in a day of disruption, when everybody, all they want is to run home to what is familiar, you're going to have to be able to stand before them and care about them and lead them with a vision of the, of the world in front of them that is the difference they can make. And that's just, it just requires you entirely to keep, this is why listening to the people outside your organization, listening to your customers, listening to your people you're serving, becoming more and more aware of their need, their pain, and your ability to serve that pain keeps you relevant and keeps you changing. BC resilient leaders do that other leaders don't do. Well, in the book, I talk about three things. They are reflective. They reflect deeply. So they're self-reflective. I use a blacksmithing metaphor and talk about this as literally being like the heat of being thrown in the fire. Um, People say, if you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen. And I tell leaders, the kitchen isn't hot enough. You actually need to be in the oven. You actually, you've got to go through the 
really good leaders go through profound, vulnerable self-reflection. They're always asking questions about how they can be better, how they can change. The second thing is really good leaders, resilient leaders are not doing it by themselves. They have relationships. It's like, an, it's like, it's like the anvil that you use in blacksmithing. You put the hot steel on the anvil. The anvil supports the steel. And if you're going through transformation as a leader, you need an anvil. You need a thick set of relationships that hold you, give you security, people who are your partners and your mentors and your friends. And then they are really intentional about their growth. They have a set of practices, a set of things they do to keep growing as a leader. So reflection, relationships, and what I call a rule of life, a set of spiritual practices or or um, intentional practices that enable you to grow as a person. And the last one is really good resilient leaders also know when they need not to lead. So they need a rhythm of leading and not leading. They need stress and rest. They need to recover. So reflection, relationships, a rule of life in a rhythm of leading and not leading is what is needed. Uh, do you have any regular like self-reflection questions that you tend to ask yourself? Yeah, it's actually, so it's probably the single biggest practice of my life. And actually, interestingly, it comes out of this kind of ancient tradition that came out of Spain, a guy named Ignatius of Loyola. He became known in the Catholic Church as Saint Ignatius. He created this way of praying that he called the prayer of examine. He called it the examine. At the end of the day, in gratitude for everything that happened to you that day, you ask the question, where was I alive? Where was I energized? Where was I my best self? Where was I? And I'm a, I'm a person of faith. Where was I responding to God's voice in my life? And then you ask, and those, and he called those consolations, the things that were, that were consoling. And then you ask the question, so where was I dull? Where was I lost energy? Where was I resistant? Where did I miss the opportunity that might've been in front of me that might've actually been the presence of God inviting me to a better life? Where was I dying slightly? What are my desolations? And what St. Ignatius believed is that if you spend every day focusing on what are, where am I alive and where am I not? Where am I energized and where am I not? Where it gives me meaning and purpose and what feels vain and wasted time. The more you're conscious of it and you keep giving yourself to your consolations, the more you will be led in the way that you are to be. And so I, when I do my executive coaching and I do a bunch, hours and hours a week, I'm always asking people who are leading, where were you most alive? Where were you most yourself? Where were you most the person that you're supposed to be? And then where did you have to deaden your senses and dull yourself and endure? And how can you lean more and more into your consolations and away from your desolations? You uh, you write a lot in the book about, uh, I think you might have alluded to it, um, kind of the, the the process that resilient leaders go through. And I don't want to go through the whole thing, obviously, because I want to uh, want people to buy the book. Uh, but there is a there is a couple of steps that I would just love uh, your thoughts on. You know, you talk in, uh, and I think you might have mentioned it before, but the the working stage of how leaders are really formed in leading. And can you just can you just talk more about that? Yeah, well, the, so when we talked about the fact that the moment, you know, before you're a leader, you're an expert, right? Yeah. So many of us, especially people who aspire to be leaders, are people who, you know, they were good in school or they were a good player on a team or they were whatever, right? They were good at something. And you think, someday I'd like to be in charge. Yeah. What you don't get is you will not learn your leadership until you step over 
and are not the expert anymore. Mm. Now, you don't learn coaching while you're a player. You can learn the game. You can learn a lot of stuff. But half of what you learn about coaching is how you communicate to people when you can't play the game. And you're not allowed to pick up the ball and go back on the field. And so, so the hard part about leadership is, 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 is that it is learned while you're leading which again, feels vulnerable. It feels like you're making mistakes. You're making them in real time. Everybody's noticing them. That's why it's so hard. Um, nobody prepares you for that leadership moment, especially in a time of great change until you're in it. Mm-hmm. So your capacity to be able to learn as you go in real time with a lot of people around you participating in it is really critical. And that means you need to have a strong enough sense of self to be able to feel vulnerable in front of people. You, you mentioned relationships before too. What might be one or two things that you're looking for in the types of relationships that can help you through the resilient times? Well, times I have three you, types. Yeah, yeah, I have three types of relationships that I talk a lot about. I think every leader needs to have partners. So even if you're the you know chief, the head, the captain, the president, the whatever, if you think you're doing it by yourself, you're not leading. All you're doing is you're asking other people uh, to support your individual work. It's terrible. It's toxic. It's narcissistic. It's dysfunctional. Um, You've got to instead have partners and you've got to have people who want to join you. Um, The best leaders invite you not to be on their team. They invite you to join them in something bigger than both of us. So you need partners. You also need mentors. I just believe that every leader needs a coach or a therapist, or a spiritual director, or a mentor. You need, I mean, just remember, LeBron James has a coach, right? The very best players in the world have coaches. Yeah. And so if you think about that reality, if you're a leader, I would ask you, you know, who is the person in your life that you go to that you can say, help me do, help me be better, help me keep growing. And, um, and you know, after 27 years of being a leader in uh, nonprofit and church work, and then seven years being a senior administrator, that's what I do now is I basically coach and consult with other leaders. And then you also need friends. And I I think many leaders minimize this. You need people who care more about you than they care about what you're doing. You need to have people who in your life who say to you, who, who, if you say to them, Hey, I'm working really hard because I want to get a promotion. They go, yeah, but you're not exercising. You're kind of becoming a jerk. You're, you're really not. I mean, they care more about, you. They ask you about you. So you need all three of them. You need partners, you need mentors, and you need friends. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I encourage every leader to do is to do an assessment. Like, do I have people who care as much about the mission as I do? They're my partners. Do I care about people who care about my development? Those are my mentors. And do I have people who care about me even more than whether I'm successful as a leader? Those are my friends. Uh, can you talk about just the role that uh, stuff outside of whatever your quote unquote like leading is, whether that be the organization or the team? I mean, I'm thinking more of like uh, like if you're leading in the professional sense, can you talk about some things in just the, your personal life that can really help? I mean, you mentioned the friends. Is there anything else mm-hmm. like how our personal life and the things that we do outside like hobbies or anything like that can affect our leadership style, maybe the relationship that you've seen between those? Well, I actually happen to believe that really good leaders have to show up as honestly, we've talked about this honestly and vulnerably as possible, right? 
So what it means is if I keep compartmentalizing my life into in little fragments, I'm going to show up closed. Hmm. So yeah, I, um, it doesn't mean that everybody on my team needs to know everything going on in my marriage, but I need to work as hard on having a really good marriage and a good family and care about my work with my, I've got adult kids. I care more about my relationship with them and by than I do about my success as a leader. It actually gives me the capacity to be grounded in something other than my success as a leader. And I get very concerned. I think the most dangerous leaders are the people who live for, if you live to be successful, you live for that ambition, it becomes a very small world and you become a small person. You have to be grounded in something other than your success as a leader. And for me, a huge part of that is my faith. I just believe that my life has been uh, shaped by a God who knows me and loves me and has been generous with me and asks me to respond to that love by being um, as by contributing to making the world a be- the place that he wants the world to be. Um, it's it, it in Jesus prayer, he talks about your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My job is to wake up every day and say, how can I make this world more and more the kind of place that God wants it to be? And I do that out of gratitude because I experience so much about my life being good and filled with many, many good things. I mean, I've had lots of pain, but lots of good things. And that what that allows me to do is to be grounded in something bigger than whether or not I'm successful, you know. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to something else uh, that you had mentioned. You talked about the the rhythm of learning when to lead and when not to lead, which is uh, just something that I really hadn't thought about um, before, which totally makes sense. Um but I would just love to know how do you distinguish between hey it, it is it is the time for me to lead and now is not the time for me to lead. Well, the, for me, the distinction is kept keeping it in a regular rhythm. Mm-hmm. Like I'm really aware that there are things I'm in charge of. If I mean, I put it this way: if there are things that are my responsibility to contribute to their changing and being better, then I got to lead those things. But not everything in the world is that. (laughs) I mean, like, so I I spend a lot of my time reminding myself, you're not in charge of everything. uh, God's in charge of the world. You're not. Uh, You're not in charge of everything. You're in charge of your little piece of the thing that that you take on. So what I also need to do is have a, I mean, I think every single night when I go to bed and sleep, I remember for at least the next seven or eight hours, and it should be more eight than seven more days, I'm not in charge of anything. That's a good reminder that at least a third of my life is to be nothing but re- restoring. And if that's true with every day, that needs to be true with every week. That's why there are people who believe in things like the Sabbath. And it needs to be true throughout the rhythm of your life. And there are just seasons like um, after long processes of being in charge, being in organizational leadership, a lot of, I mean, I, I'm now in a world where I do a lot more startup work. So I turn, I've now three times in the last seven years, I've turned over a big organization and big budget and big staff teams to someone else so I could start something new. It's the season of my life when I'm discovering new things and working with other leaders um, instead of running a larger event. There's just different rhythms, different seasons of life. Yeah. How, uh, how can you tell if maybe you're taking responsibility for something to lead that maybe isn't your responsibility? Well, hmm. I have to just admit that I, that I usually get to that late. Usually, I need somebody else to tell me. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm a by by nature I'm a, you know, I was the captain of the wrestling team. So when I was in high school, so I have a tendency to like just grab 
grab the thing. I want to wrestle it to the ground. I oftentimes need people to say, this isn't yours. Mm -hmm. So this is why having people like my wife in my life and friends in my life who will ask me hard questions. You know, do you really need to be in charge of that? Do you really need to do that too? Do you think that there's nobody else who can do it? Those are important questions. So that's the part that friends, sometimes friends, a lot of times friends, a lot of times mentors, those are the people in my life that help me to do it. I, I don't do that very well by myself. Yeah. Has, has there been anyone in uh, just that you've looked through throughout history that has really just inspired you whenever it comes to this adaptive leadership style? And if so, what did you learn from them? Well, the book Tempered Resilience was built on uh, a, a line from Dr. King, um, Dr. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King's in, in his famous I Have a Dream speech, which as most of you no, probably the I have a dream section wasn't in the speech originally. That was yeah. extemporaneous. It was originally a different, whole different metaphor. And in the middle of the speech, looking at 250,000 people who had come from all over the country, many of them had come from the dogs and the hoses and the jails of protesting the lack of civil rights. They showed up there and he looked at them and said, I have a dream because Michaela Jackson, who was a gospel singer, yelled to him, Martin, tell him about the dream. Yeah, And when he starts to tell them about the dream, he starts with a vision, a passage in the Old Testament from Isaiah chapter 40 about the way in which the God is going to make the world a great place and there will be justice someday. And he says, because of that, I go back to the South. Just think about that. Mm-hmm. With this faith, I go back to the South. He says to a bunch of people, we're going to go back. We're going to go back into the struggle. We're going to go back into the struggle for civil rights. We're going to go back to the dogs and the jails and the hoses. With this faith, we'll be able to hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope. Mm. And for me, tempered resilience is about being a tempered tool, like a tool like it's a chisel that can hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope. With this faith, we'll be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. And there's a parallelism there. Good good speech writing, right? You Two mm-hmm. points to make one. Hewing means transforming, not bludgeoning, not blasting, not blowing up, not bashing to bits, but transforming this big granite mountain of racial injustice and prejudice into hope. And to me, it's the most resilient thing I'd ever read. And it inspired me to think, and this is why I'm I just believe that the work of our African-American brothers and sisters, particularly who are, who have been standing in the face of 400 years of racial injustice are inspiring to me. How can you work for reconciliation, for the transformation of the world where despair turns to hope? That, that's the, it's the most inspiring thing I know. Yeah. Any other thoughts before we wrap up our conversation? Well, you said, Caleb, that you spend a lot of time with younger leaders. I think one of the things that I want younger leaders to know is that I believe uh, when I started, when I was a younger leader, Mm -hmm. the leaders over me were the people out of the greatest generation. They were people who had been in the Depression and World War II, and they were the ones who were considered the greatest generation. I actually think that the young millennials and Gen Zs could be the next greatest generation. Mm. You have an entire younger group of folks whose life has been marked by things like 9-11 and the 2008 economic crisis and now 2020. And I believe that that's not wasted. And so I think that younger leaders, I would want them to take seriously that this is a generational moment to participate in something bigger than yourself. 
and that you might become the most important generation that we've had maybe ever. Well, Todd, I know that people are going to want to pick up tempered resilience and uh, continue to learn from you as well. So where's the best place for people to pick up the book and where's the best place place for people to go to learn from you and maybe uh, check out any of your coaching stuff as well? Yeah. So, so I have a, Great team that has helped me with this. So all you got to do is text the word change, change to 66866. Change 66866. And it connects you to the center that I lead and to the resources that we have. And you can find, obviously, you can Google the book at Amazon and other places like that. Um, But yeah, text change to 66866 and you can get connected to the work that I do and my team. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today. My pleasure, Caleb. Thank you. If you enjoyed that conversation with Todd, the best way to make sure you don't miss any future conversations is by subscribing to the podcast on whatever podcast player you use, whether that be Apple or Stitcher or Google Play or anything that you happen to listen to on the podcast. Or maybe you're just listening. I was going to say, maybe you're just listening somewhere on the internet and you just happen to come across it. Whatever it is, go ahead and subscribe. Also, leave a rating and write a review of the podcast. It's the best way. to one, show your appreciation for the podcast and to help us spread word about the podcast as well. If you learned something from this particular episode, I would love to hear from you. You can go ahead and reach out to me with my Instagram handle, which is at Caleb J. Mason. Also, if there's something that you would love to learn about on the podcast, go ahead and reach out to me there as well. Now, finally, thank you to Garrett and to Sam, and to Todd for helping make this podcast awesome. I'm so grateful for all of you of helping um, and helping us have a good time here on the Learner's Corner podcast. And that's all that I have for you today. And so until next time, keep learning and keep growing.